If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape, what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. In episode one, we enter the strangely alluring landscape of Nick the Stripper, a song by Nick Cave and the Birthday Party. We look at the Crystal Ballroom scene in Melbourne St Kilda and head to the set of the chaotic Nick the Stripper video clip. It's Melbourne in the late 1970s, a suburban sprawl where the pubs close early and the focus is on blokes, beer and footy. If you're a teenager into art, into reading, philosophy, or questioning the status quo, you're on the outer, even a target. It's even worse if you're a girl, or God forbid, you're a guy who wears eyeliner. Well, you have to remember we were all like arty, southeastern suburb puffs. You know, like we're all from Mount Waverley and Blackburn. And it was just because that was where the cheap land was when our parents were looking to buy a house. And so that suburban crawl expanded in the southeastern suburbs. So you had all these people born in the late 50s and early 60s growing up there. And the way they created the suburbs, there wasn't really anything cultural. There was like churches, schools and shopping centres. There wasn't theatres, cinemas, music venues. And the pubs were just like for the bloke. So we're just like huge beer barns, like the Mountain View and the Burvale. If you weren't particularly sporty, if you were arty, what did you do? You know, you basically locked yourself in your bedroom and you learned how to play guitar or you drew comic books or you wrote songs or... Like, if you had any brains at all, you were kind of forced to do something creative. You know, like, if you were a freak in the southeastern suburbs, like we all were, you were followed David Bowie. That was Rob Wellington from band The Fiction. Here's Lucy McLaren a young filmmaker at the time who produced the video clips for Nick the Stripper and Shivers. There's always going to be a portion of the population who grow up going, I just don't belong here. I don't get it. I don't understand. How come I was born in Templestowe? This doesn't make any sense to me. I've got to get out. I've got to find people like me. And that's what happened in 1979. They all found each other at the Crystal Ballroom. In photographer Peter Milne's recent book, Juvenilia, we get an introduction to many of the characters you'll meet in this podcast. There's a gawky teenage Nick Cave, Mick Harvey, Tracy Pugh, Phil Calvert, Roland S. Howard standing in front of a blackboard that says the model of youth with chalk in his fingers. There's Anita Lane and Polly Borland, Pierre Voltaire and Genevieve McGuckin. And on the front cover is the striking figure of Bronwyn Adams, curly red hair and black boots. Bronwyn's from the band Crime and the City Solution. Okay, picture this. You're growing up in the 1960s and early 70s in a savage savage, endless onslaught of verbal attack. People constantly make revolting remarks to you when you're walking down the street. And this is when you're 12 and 13. The the things that were valued in Australia were things like mateship, not talking too much, you know, not banging on about stuff, not being too enthusiastic, being laconic. And 
things like, you know, really liking to dive into things, really liking to unpack things, yeah, really liking to have long conversations, really liking beautiful, precious things that ornament the world. That was not Australia. Melbourne felt culturally isolated in many ways. It wasn't as if music was easy to find. Records took months to arrive from overseas, and often teenagers would pore over images of the bands from New York and London in magazines like NME before they even heard their music. As I was speaking to people from the scene, the same names came up again and again. Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, Patti Smith and the Ramones, Television, Gang of Four, Pear Ubu, the sensational Alex Harvey band, Here's Rob Griffiths from Little Murders. That time was really exciting because you were kind of different to everybody else. You know, like everyone was listening to Saturday Night Fever by the Bee Gees. Um, and that was the big album at the time. So you'd have to go to parties and you'd have to leave really quickly because they put on this terrible music. We never got to hear records before they came from England or anywhere because, you know, there was no Spotify. So you'd have to go on what people wrote in, like, The Enemy, which was like the Bible for punk rock then. And basically you were making decisions based on opinions of people like Nick Kent. And I think that writing informed a lot of what the bands were doing in Melbourne. And I guess that's why Melbourne bands were very different to English punk bands, I'd say. English punk bands got to see Ramones, they got to hear Ramones, and people like John Peel on the radio, where a lot of um, bands like Boys Next Door, Young, Young Charlton, they formed their kind of ideas from reading. A passion for music was often handed down in families. Leonard Cohen records passed on from older brothers, the sounds of pop through a sister's wall. Here's Genevieve McGuckin, founder of the band These Immortal Souls. I was lucky to have a dad who loved music and he loved classical music, but he also loved Jacques Brel and... Um, Billie Holiday and uh, Bessie Smith and very early Black Blues and he loved Leonard Cohen and in 1972 there was a um, radio program called Room to Move, this guy called Chris Winter and for two hours a week you have this amazing music like David Bowie and the Velvet Underground and, and Dad used to... Um, tape it for me while he was at work. He liked How did he it. tape it though, in those days? On a cassette player, yes. With a 180-minute cassette in it, which is very long and liable to, to go wonky. She took me for a walking tour through St Kilda and we ended up in the Veg Out Community Gardens in a thunderstorm. For many in the ballroom scene, it was the record stores that brought people together. Here's filmmaker Paul Goldman, who directed video clips for Boys Next Door and The Birthday Party. I worked in Missing Link for a time, simply because when the boxes of imports arrived, I could get to hear them first and buy them, because I knew if I got there two hours later, they'd all be snapped up. I mean, having a, the latest copy of the Pop Roots record or the new Banshees record was like treasure. I mean, people would come over to your house and spend the night. I mean, I'd go to bed and the record would play and there'd be people who were still there in the morning listening to the latest Talking Heads record. Here's Ronald Adams. Bruce Milne was a hub. He kind of, in a way, launched punk rock. It was bubbling up all over the place, of course, but Bruce Milne was a kind of central hub. He would organise shows and he had a record label eventually and, you know, he was Mr Vinyl Junkie. And him and Roland were friends. 
The other place was Archie and Jughead's, which was a record shop, which then became Missing Link. And they were both hubs in the very, very early time. So people would go and look for records. That was the scene kind of place. You'd always see people from the scene. And in those days, you could tell if a person was a kind of misfitty, artistic fellow traveller, because in those days, coolness hadn't been democratised. So if you were a stylish person, you had to make that up all by yourself. These days, it's hard to imagine gentrified St Kilda as it was back then. It was perceived as a place of danger, somewhere to avoid being on the streets. But many musicians started to gravitate to St Kilda and lived there because it was cheap and you had venues like the Crystal Ballroom on your doorstep. Here's Mick Harvey from Boys Next Door and the Birthday Party, who lived just around the corner. You told me last time that, <laughs> that St Kilda was quite a scary place to be. Well, it was just scary. So a lot of the criminal element were around there and a lot of the drugs were there and the prostitution and when on the weekends, all the idiots looking for uh, a bad late night time would come in from the suburbs and rev heads and stuff. So you had to be pretty careful in the wee small hours if you were wandering around, which I quite often was because you know, you'd be playing gigs late and you'd be going out after the gig because you hadn't eaten since lunchtime or something. You know? So you had to really be careful. It was pretty dangerous on a Friday and Saturday night. The George Hotel was originally called The Terminus and built opposite the new railway station in St Kilda in 1857. The interiors were opulent with a sprung floor for dancers and chandeliers. By the late 1970s, this dilapidated mansion became the perfect venue for elegantly wasted musicians and punters. Dolores San Miguel, whose book on the ballroom gives a colourful history, opened a number of rooms and bars at the venue, including the Winter Garden Room and the Sea View, aka the Crystal Ballroom. Well, of course, rock and roll rooms have a thing of their own. We used to call it rock and roll perfume, where enough beers had been spilt into the carpet to make it permanently sticky and permanently drenched. And the owners wouldn't bother cleaning it very often because um, there wasn't much point. It just got messy again straight away. So the combination of beer, perfume, smoke and sweat gave it this particularly ripe aroma. As soon as you got a crowd in and as soon as you got a band on stage, you, you kind of weren't aware of it. It all just disappeared. But when you walked into an empty room to rehearse, it, it hit you like a brick wall. <laughs> That's Doug Faulkner from Hunters and Collectors. The band spent three months rehearsing in the bar downstairs at the ballroom before their first gig. And the ballroom wasn't just about the sex, drugs and rock and roll. It was about the singers. Here's Lucy McLaren. Back then you had to serve supper. It was part of the licence was that you had to serve supper. And so they were put out at nine o'clock every night, the most appalling, like, <laughs> pastrami and white bread sandwiches. And everyone would just inhale them because nobody had eaten they were all teenagers, you know, they like, eat and eat and eat. But, yeah, and so all these just the most revolting sandwiches I've ever tasted in my whole life. My sister used to go to the ballroom as well. She's a couple of years younger than me. The thing that we used to drink was the white wine with orange juice because the wine by itself was completely undrinkable. Like many in the ballroom, John Wilson was underage. While youngsters could sometimes get in the main doors, others would sneak in through the fire escape to a very seductive and grown-up world. If you can imagine, you know, the ballroom is one big playground. The ones that wanted to be the most visible would always be in that caged bar on the left-hand side as you walked in, 
And you know, very often Ron Howard would be in there with, with a group of flag mattresses and always had women around him. Nick Cage was usually present there, but Roland often was. Mick Harvey also. And, and, and this is what's funny about this is like, we were in an adult world, but we were in our adults. You know, we were 16, we were 17 or whatever. Like, sisters 14, 15. Uh, and it was a very sort of at once exciting but also intimidating environment because everyone seems so old and seems so cool. And so walking in there as, as a 16 or 17 year old, you'd be like, oh, holy shit, what is this, what is this world I've entered? Do I have any right to be here? It was like the cool kids were there, but on the stairs on the way up, if you really wanted to be seen, you know, you hung around on the stairs on the way up. When I meet up with Pierre Sutcliffe, a.k.a. Pierre Voltaire, in Hampton, he offers to take me off shopping, an offer I can't refuse. We still adore scanning the racks of vintage stuff all these decades later. Pierre was one of the cool kids on the stairs. That had three or four band rooms, that had bars and the staircase. There was, you know, lots of room to hang out. You could sneak out onto the roof, you could sneak into the room's toilets. There was lots of, you know, hidey holes to do whatever you wanted to do. And it was kind of glamorous at the time. We didn't realise that it was glamorous. Everyone wore lots of coal and boys and girls. And, you know, because it was all lots of clothing, the girls were finding lots of 20s and 30s stuff. We were mostly in black suits. You know, it kind of became goth rather than us copying goth, because I don't think goth really existed before then. But I went back there years after it had been closed and went upstairs and, you know, it was all closed off, but I kind of got in through to the ballroom and stood there and I was freaking out, actually, to be honest. It was very Stephen King. Why were you freaking out? Oh, just being back there again. You know, I hadn't been there for 20 years probably. And it was pretty fresh in my memory. And walking around in this ghostly ballroom, and the floors are still sprung. So I stood at the top of the stairs, which is where you'd stand to see who was walking on the stairs, who looked like the most likely to be up, up to something interesting or kind of survey the staircase, which was huge. And at the end of the night, you know, Toddy, the publican, would be calm, yeah, you've got to get everyone out of here, you know, off you go. It was kind of my perch. And then I stood there and you kind of saw the ghosts on the staircase. And I really, like, I wasn't freaked out and scared. I was just like, Jesus, you know, I can't see this crazy world trace. Not just dead people, but, you know, I could just see it as clear as day. Everyone standing around smoking and drinking and talking about which party they're going to go to. It was really uh, something. to the I Got Drunk at the Crystal Ballroom Facebook page, you get a real sense of the vibrancy of the post-punk and new wave scene. Models, dead can dance, the moodists, serious young insects, laughing clowns, the reels, and even a band led by Philip Brophy, whose name was three symbols and pronounced in clicks. Bands of all genres and persuasions played on the same bill. You didn't have to know how to play an instrument or how to sing, and along with musicians, visual artists, fashion designers, doco makers, poets, they were all drawn in too. What everyone shared was a fuck you attitude. Here's Rob Wellington. It was something that needed to happen because music it was sort of had become a plaything of, of these sort of corporations and it was very sort of manipulated and the best thing about our scene was we totally broke away 
and it was completely controlled by the actual artists and the audience and the, and promoters who actually cared about music and we lived in this lovely bubble where we could kind of do anything as long as it was interesting. For Lucy McLaren and Jane Sims, it was most of all about a sense of belonging, finding your tribe. But I think for a lot of people it was really formative, even if they won't, don't admit it. It was actually something that made them who they are still. It gave a lot of people permission and support and encouragement who otherwise would have been a bit lost. Yeah, I just thought it was, gave the music a chance and really liked it. But it was hard too because, yeah, you're young and you just, you got peer pressure. But I, I then just had to gravitate towards people that liked different music. Because when I first moved to Melbourne from the from the country, my friends were going to, well, they were taking me to see Joanna Band and Mondo Rock. I couldn't stand it. I just thought, what, what am I doing, you know? For some, it was even an epiphany. John Durr from The Editions wrote a song about the ballroom called Nuns and Priests. You can check it out on YouTube. For a lot of the people there, it was kind of a religion, as scenes tend to be. So that's how that song came about, just seeing people who were so kind of, you know, religious about the whole scene, you know, and, and their involvement in it. And uh, I wrote that song with Fred Negro. So Fred and I just, were just discussing how focused, for want of a better word, a lot of the people who used to go to the ballroom every Saturday night were. So when you say religious, can you talk about that a bit more? People become really caught up in a scene. And it becomes their, their life, their lives on their truck, their focus uh to an extent it's almost what they live for so that's how you get these intense kind of passions about people fighting arguing whatever and i mean to me scenes are necessary for ultimate creativity because i think an artist without a scene is kind of like a bird without a wing they kind of feed on themselves but they're also like one of those elements right up the end of the elementary table very very unstable i meet hugo race in a park in st kilda on a hot day between lockdowns. For Hugo, who was in plays with marionettes and Nick Cave's band later on, the scene seemed more exclusive. Where I diverged with a lot of people in the Melbourne music scene and why I found it difficult to relate to some people and to some scenes because a lot of it was about locking into a particular set of criteria in order to belong and that always made me really uncomfortable. Even though I tried to hide the full extent of the width of what I listened to from people, in the end I kind of gave up. So what would have happened if you'd said, I'm into this kind of music? Why did you have to hide it? When punk broke here, just about everybody I know, I found out later, had to reinvent themselves because we were all middle-class kids with a history, so we had to try and reinvent ourselves as being classless kids of the punk movement or of the post-punk movement or something. So there was a lot of pretension and a lot of kind of gentle deception about the pretension and the deception of, of working on how it is that you actually appear to be even when you're not that thing. That's part of what growing up is about. But it was particularly intense in the scene at that time, and, and here I'm talking about the, the very early 1980s, because people were very judgmental and very critical and very competitive. It wasn't a friendly, welcoming situation. It was actually quite a confronting situation where you were put through tests by people, where you either made the cut or you didn't. Nick Cave, Tracy Pugh, Mick Harvey and Phil Calvert met when they were at high school at Caulfield Grammar, while Roland S. Howard came from the band Young Charlatans. In various incarnations, they would go on to form Boys Next Door and then the birthday party. A lot of bands at that time, they would kind of pop out of the box with some kind of idea and know exactly what they were 
on about and then that that was about it, sort of a bit one-dimensional. So for all of the mistakes we made and all the, the sort of slightly dodgy turns we took across the first couple of years that we were kind of in the public eye, it was really because we were just trying to work out what we wanted to do. And we didn't really know. We didn't. We never had a plan. We kind of just found ourselves playing gigs, doing the weird stuff we were already playing, and we seemed to be adopted as being part of the thing that was happening. It was like, um, fine, you know. But we, we were just trying to find our way through and figure out what, what, um, what we could do. We didn't really know. That was Mick Harvey. Pierre Voltaire remembers the early days of meeting the boys next door when he was in the band Teenage Radio Stars with James Freud and Sean Kelly. So I joined the Teenage Radio Stars who were already signed up by Suicide. So I was on the same package tour with Barry Earl who ran Suicide would ring up our pubs and say I'll give him five bands for the price of one. Because so instead of paying 250 bucks for a band, he'd pay 250 for five bands and we'd all get 10 bucks each. But it was great because we played four or five nights a week and we, you know, no one was very musical, like proficient. So the boys next door, Jab, Radio Skies and usually this band called X-Ray Z went on last because they, they owned the PA. And they were old and they were actually really painfully earnest about politics and stuff. We, you know, we were 18, maybe 19-year-old kids who were just loving everything and certainly didn't give a fuck about Malcolm Fraser. Um, one of their songs was called Give Fraser the Razor. That's <laughs> what we're dealing with. Anyway, um, so we were playing four or five nights a week and we started kind of hanging out together and the radio stars didn't like the fact that I was hanging out with Nick and Tracy and Roland had turned up. So why were you hanging out with Nick and Tracy? Oh, just because they were really fun and interesting. What were they like when you first met them? Just younger versions of themselves. So in those early days, what set the boys next door apart? Here's Hugo Race. They had presence that other bands didn't have without even, that's before you even get to the music. They had a real look. They weren't average looking guys. They were tall, they were loud, and they were kind of like a gang. So they had a vibe that surrounded them collectively, which was their great asset, because that doesn't come automatically with bands at all, as you, I'm mm. sure you well know. It's, it's kind of a phenomenal thing when a, when a combination of people get together and the way their energies meet up. I think I saw them for the first time at Hearts on Turak Road and didn't know anything about them. They were a really amazing presence on stage and one of the best bands around. There wasn't that much competition. It wasn't until they put out the Hee Haw EP that I thought, wow, this is um, exactly the kind of stuff that I'm into. That was when they started using their other kinds of influences. They started bringing in bands that they admired. They had a kind of uh, an intelligence to their ambition that I didn't have. Most people I know didn't have, so it was always quite surprising to see what they'd get up to next. Myself and other people like me actually didn't think we were that good at all, so there was that kind of gap of self-belief that holds you back from really taking yourself seriously and doing the best for the situation that you can. Whereas I think in their case that they always thought that they were really great. They just had this very high opinion of themselves and I don't mean that in a put down kind of matter, I mean that in a really factual kind of way. And maybe they got that from their experience together as friends and, and in the band. It's hard to find the right combination of people to form a group. As you know, most groups sort of 
attempt and then reshuffle and then people leave and then they just can't find the right combination of people. But they were, they were willing to compete. They were willing mm. to fight to be successful. It's just confidence in their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And I think that inspired people around them, that they, they were so confident and they really had the courage of their convictions to try those ideas out when other people were too timid to do so. Yeah, it's true. Musician and songwriter Genevieve McGuckin was there for almost every gig The Boys Next Door played in Melbourne. A girlfriend and bandmate of Nick and then Roland, she moved to London and Berlin with the band and saw the shift when they became the birthday party. Well, it changed enormously. I mean, when I first saw the boys next door, they were playing at a party in the backyard and I wasn't overwhelmed at all. I was too busy having fun at the party. And then I saw them somewhere in a funny hall out in the back of, you know, in Ringwood or somewhere, I don't know where it was. And they were still punky. Yeah, very punky in a way, songs like Joyride and masturbation generation and um, didn't really grab me yet and more sort of dressed up and it was more more like wearing costumes or something I think yeah Nick you know would have these funny little waistcoats and a piano shirt and then I saw them at the Tiger Lounge and I really enjoyed that and Nick was sort of getting more into performing and his singing was still you know not polished (laughs) by any means but yeah it was very engrossing you know just to stand and stare and the atmosphere was charged and then by the time they got to London I just loved watching them every single time but more and more so as they got towards the birthday party and the two last EPs Mutiny and all those songs The Bad Seed, Fear of Gun, Deep in the Woods, I just loved those songs. And the whole atmosphere was just electric. You know, every every gig was had its own personality and its own sort of little mythology would happen of things that would happen or whether Tracy would fall flat on his face or <laughs> whether Mick would storm off being really angry with someone who'd got their guitar lead mixed up with his or um, Nick climbing up on things. but never got bored seeing the birthday party. Like, they're totally hooked. Like, just this incredible, deep... Um, the rhythm section, Mick and Tracy, was so tight together and so great. And then this sort of wailing humanoid guitar and Nick over the top. It was just absolutely, you know, an experience every single time. And I don't think I can say that about anything else that I've seen that every time I've seen it, I've been totally spellbound that I was. It was a sort of primal experience. These people were just locked into the present moment and they'd be sweat dripping off Roland's nose. (laughs) Um, Mick would be drumming in that very tight way of his. Tracy was just a brilliant bass player, even though he said he only ever wanted to be in the one band. Once that band was over, that was it. He didn't want to play bass again. He just wanted to play with those people in that band, and he was so bloody good at it. They were each indispensable, the four of them, and they just formed this tight, unassailable thing. And the words, Nick was starting to really write some beautiful words, and, ah, yeah. It's that shit. It's that shit. It's that shit. Where do songs like Nick the Stripper come from? 
When I started making this podcast, I had the idea that it would be a simple enough process to work it out, to pin a song down. But it seems songs, like memories, are vulnerable, jelly-wobbly things. Where do they start? Do they start when Tracy plays a killer riff? Or when Anita Lane scribbles a line on a scrap of paper? Nick and Roland were sitting around and you know, Roland came up with the bass line or Nick came up with the bass line. I'm not sure. I, I, it's hard to imagine Nick came up with the bass line by himself because it's three notes on, on a guitar. So four notes on an open and three other notes. So I think that's a bit hard for him to achieve. Roland must have been involved in there somewhere. Although arguments about who wrote what when they would ever get together were always endless and I was always glad not to be in the room. It's a co-write, I think, and uh, is it a co-write? Maybe it's not, maybe it's just Cave. Is it just Cave? <laughs> oh, anyway, whatever. <laughs> it's, um, it's probably just Cave. So they used to have arguments today about the source uh, material? Yeah, they used to have disagreements about who'd written what when they'd sit down and write stuff together and end up, you know, Nick would usually feel like he'd just written it and Roland would be like, well, actually, I wrote that bass line. But playing that sort of song at the time, you know, playing the sort of material we were coming up with in, in 81, once things like King Inc and Nick the Stripper started coming into this, into the repertoire, it really felt like, it really felt quite empowering and exciting to play that material because it was, um, it really felt like it was ours and there was nobody else sounded like that. And that's obviously something you kind of strive for and which an awful lot of people never achieve. So we kind of knew we were onto something in a way. And then that's totally liberating. Suddenly you've got this huge field of possibilities in front of you once you've realised you've broken through some kind of constraints or barriers around how you can construct something. And for the rest of us in the band, I don't know about for Nick, because for Nick the band was always kind of a vehicle for his lyrics and for his you know, performance and being the centre of attention and stuff like that. So um, for the rest of us, for myself and Roland and Tracy too, it was really kind of musically gratifying and exciting because it was something we could really channel our ideas and our musical tastes into. And it was something that Nick became less interested in over the years because it didn't really correspond with his musical taste. He wasn't actually that interested in that music. He didn't really relate to the music the birthday party was making in the end because it was really coming very strongly from other people in the band and it wasn't his sort of thing. Aspects of it were not his sort of thing. And he said that quite specifically to me in 83 when the band was breaking up and the bad seeds were starting, you know. He just said, I find it hard to relate to a lot of the music the birthday party's making. Part of the stylizations of the birthday party too were very specific and personal to the musicians who were involved. We always felt that they were more to do with a kind of unshackling of traditional forms and stuff like that. So for us as musicians, they were really kind of liberating. That was Mick Harvey. When we decided to remake the song Nick the Stripper for this podcast, we had no idea what a challenge the song would be in its timing, its tempo, its angular guitar, humour and psychotic delivery. Here's Phil Calvert, the drummer for The Birthday Party, who steered us in the right direction by drumming on our track. I think back to when I first heard the riff actually get played, and that song was actually uh, written when we were living in uh, Maxwell Road in Fulham in London in 1980. And um, we were very limited in our access to any place we could, you know, make noise or do anything. We were living in built-up London in a, you know, a one-up, one-down kind of apartment and all the band was jammed into this one kind of hovel-type house thing initially and then 
people split off into squats. The only instruments in that house were uh, Mick and Roland's guitar and Tracy's bass. But Nick wrote that on Roland's Jaguar. So he was just sitting in the lounge room and he came up with this kind of one string kind of riff on Roland's guitar and said, I'm, I'm gonna get this idea together around this and was playing it over and over. And the other song that eventuated in the same way was King Inc. But the thing that was interesting most of all about Nick the Stripper was that the unusual time signature. The bit that I enjoyed the most is whilst we were developing this whole groove and everything which is in 5-4 that we came to this section the song where Nick was going fat little insect and I started picking up the insect the two beats on that uh, on the snare drum and then repeating it which just means I'm playing 4-4 against everybody else's 5-4 which sounds very ungainly when you hear it for the very first time. I think it was Roland's idea that his guitar part, which is the da-da-da-da-da-da-da part, uh, would be played by horns. And I remember we got in the guys from Equal Local and they were doing the horn parts. And I remember Roland explaining it to it and standing out there with the horn guys and sort of pointing at them each time they had to play it because they were trying to keep track of the track. But only we in the band knew where we were up to and someone who's just walked in on that song doesn't really know where those parts go. In Nick the Stripper, there's a great misconception that the guitar solo in the middle is Roland. It is not. That is Mick Harvey's guitar solo. So a lot of people don't realise that. Roland's thing is a the harmonic type of thing and lots of other parts as well, but the actual really picked kind of solo in the middle is Mick. So there you go, there's one for the fans. Andy Griffiths, who many of you may know as the writer of the 13-storey Treehouse series, was in a band called Gothic Farmyard at the ballroom. He screamed and often beat himself into a bloody pulp on stage. He seemed the perfect person to do backing vocals on Nick the Stripper. The lyric is often an entry point for me, and particularly with Nick the Stripper and King Inc. Those two songs seem to be different sides of the same coin. In the Nick the Stripper, I always kind of felt was like Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. It was kind of a half man, half insect kind of idea. So it was as if I was hearing the drama of Gregor Samsa in musical form, you know, and and the the humour of it. He's a fat little insect. You knew there was some sort of self-reference going on with the Nick being the main character but he's a fat little insect and uh, you loved that and the ugliness of it and then you get into King Inc which is really that song that has a disturbing demonic kind of energy Um, what's in that room what's in that house say something say something loudly express yourself and then ah the blood curdling scream it was like a metaphor for the importance of self-expression but you don't know what's in the house, you know. So the scary stuff could come out. When I talk to Genevieve McGuckin, she tells me that Nick's pet name for her was Little Insect when they were going out, so it seems he had a fondness for the term. But I get the sense that the song is not so much about Nick taking off layers as armouring up, playing humorously with the names he could be called and getting in first with a bit of self-mocking. Here's Phil Calvert with his take. Both Nick the Stripper and uh, King Inc. 
come from that idea of a created uh, imaginary uh, character that you can then form uh, some kind of a story around. Maybe it ties to the Nick's, you know, the performance level on stage. You get hotter and hotter, so you're taking off your clothes, which you know became trademark for years. So the, uh, the suit jacket's the only thing that comes off these days. The shirt stays on. Back in our time, and certainly into the earlier versions of the Bad Seeds, if it got hot, Nick's clothes came off. One of the reasons that Nick the Stripper still has so much resonance today is the video clip made by Paul Goldman and Lucy McLaren, young film students at Swinburne at the time. The video is an insane riot of crazy mess that still feels fresh 40 years later. It went on to influence Sonic Youth and was part of an installation at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Here's Paul Goldman. And I said to Nick, what do you want to do? We started talking about how we thought it should just be shot outside somewhere, not in the studio. At the time, the videos that were being made were very, very clean and neat and they were full of video effects. Shoot in the studio, do all these very, very primitive visual effects that are all digital that we all now associate with knock on wood. And they didn't want to do any of that. They just wanted to do something that was raw, kind of primal, visceral, because that was one of the key words about them on stage. And they wanted to be fucked up. We got talking about uh, the work of Hieronymus Bosch and his paintings, The Garden of Earthly Delights. And we were all, no doubt, wondering aloud whether we could do something that was like that and what that meant and how would that translate into something that you would do in suburban Melbourne. We were living in Hawthorne at the time and we went down to the Hawthorne tip and we went, let's shoot it here and we should do something that's kind of like, imagine if Louis Boonwell made a music video. Imagine if you took those, or or Werner Herzog had. A film at the time that I loved to death was Even Dwarf Started Small, a black and white film by Werner Herzog, which is just a film of anarchy and chaos. It's set in some fictitious school for blind kids and they just go riotous and destroy the place. it ends with them crucifying monkeys. Stuff that was all has all become part and parcel of Nick's portmanteau of, of imagery and stuff. I mean, you know, these are things that we held uh, as being precious. He went on to make hundreds of video clips around the world, but still rates Nick the Stripper as his best. Paul and his crew put out a call on 3RRR radio station and handed out flyers at the ballroom that said, Come dressed for a New Year's Eve party. In hell. We had organised for one of Evan English's friends who was an apprentice electrician to break into the pump house at the tip and to hardwire us into their three-phase electricity system. Not only was that totally illegal, it was insanely dangerous to do, but we had to do it because we needed to run three-phase power to power our film lights, our lamps, which were pretty big. We borrowed stolen the, the equipment from film school We'd stolen the stock from film school. We'd actually taken an impression of the key to the stock room and went and stole the film stock. The police showed up at one point and asked us what we were doing. I don't know what they thought we were doing. It must have looked crazy from where they were. And the fire brigade showed up at one point. There was just fires everywhere. People were taking drugs. I'm not talking about smoking dope, I'm talking about shooting up. The people were drunk everywhere, it was debauchery. A good friend of mine who's died, who was a wonderfully colourful character in the scene, Barry Sherman, is the guy in a tutu leading McCarvey around blindfolded. 
and often would just lead him into places where he'd fall over. So Mick Harvey was getting cut up all the time. Nick was walking around in a loincloth with porcadillo written on his chest. Nick's barefooted in a tip. Not the smartest thing to do. Tracy was drunk. Phil Calvert, as usual, was the stalwart, the one person we could rely on to keep the band in check. I think Roland was just heartily bemused by the whole thing. There was a moment when I was getting reports about what was going on, about people fucking in the tip and people drunk and people on the verge of OD. <laughs> and I just went, um, I've just got to make a music video. <laughs> no public access at night. Inside the gate, Benny can see why they've chosen the place. It's crazy terrain, a toxic lake. The smell is the worst part. He wipes his nose with his sleeve. Weird metal contraptions stick out of the dirt like dead cow carcasses, tripping people over. Benny carries the backdrop and it's flapping about him, a sail in a wild wind. They start putting the circus tent up, the sides roll a travelling carnival show. It's built around a pole. The director gets the shot list out and Benny positions the backdrop up the end so the band will be in front of it. Let go of it, Benny. Let's see how long this fucker stays up. The cinematographer gives it a shove. The band straggles in at dusk. The set designer paints Nick Cave's body. The writing, porcadillo, sweats off as soon as he starts moving. A dirty heat. Nick's wearing a loincloth like an emaciated Roman. It's the same ballroom crowd at the start, the same 200 punters at every birthday party gig. But then they come and come, every nutcase and junkie in Melbourne, turning up at the gates, their roar dressed in skulls. They come bearing knives and pitchforks and goats and a cage filled with strange coloured birds. Someone sets up a gallows. Rolling. Nick leads the way, wading through the whirling cesspool. Mick Harvey's blindfolded. He's missing the whole thing. The art director pours petrol across the lake and lights it up and then everyone's throwing matches. The fires burn underground through the toxic shit, flaring when they hit something, exploding. People run around dodging the missiles of flame. A girl sits down in a bath and it becomes a sinkhole, deeper than a metre, run off from the tip. 
Nick starts beating his chest, pig dog or whatever it means. He kisses a goat, grabs its head. The chain is tight around its neck. Benny waits until the shot's over and loosens the noose. The goat wanders off and starts nibbling at the dust. Roll up, roll up, put your bets on. Come and look at the lucky prize. A wheel spinning in the grisly fairground. A swirl of lollipop. A game of chance. A boy is naked to the waist. He lies in the middle of the wheel, propped up. His long fringe falls in his face as he does cartwheels, whipped around. Roll up, roll up. Come and see this fine specimen. He's yours for just $20. A man rubs the boy's sweating torso with a flourish. To stop the spinning, to save the boy, Benny calls out a number. But as he steps forward, another older man calls out a number at the same time. The red number is hooked and the wheel starts to slow and the boy dangles upside down. To the gentleman on the left, the man in the hat. When the boy steps down, he staggers and his knees buckle as he dribbles vomit into the dirt. The man squats down. The boy's eyes roll, still loose in his head. Are you okay to walk? Let's get you home. night porter from the local asylum brings 60 people for an excursion. Benny can't tell who's acting and who isn't. An old hippie decked out in LSD and Jesus cloth slams a crucifix in the dirt and climbs aboard. He hangs there and waits to be worshipped. Everyone ignores him until two skinheads pick up the cross. They carry him as if part of a procession. Just keep rolling, the director tells the cinematographer. The hippie hangs there all night in and out of consciousness. But everyone is turned towards the devil as he winds his way around the lake. Every couple of hours, the director sends Benny off to round them up. The members of the band have gone missing. He finds one fucking to fireworks and the putrid dust, toxic waste eating the tender skin of the girl underneath him. Just keep rolling. A fat man dressed in the slave robes of a eunuch sits on top of the gallows, minding the noose for Nick. Every now and then he howls at the moon, slick and stoned, a colonel curts. When people climb up and get close, he punches them and that makes them approach him even more. We're nearly out of film. A thin boy, the spinning boy, who's been everywhere and nowhere, lies at the edge of the swamp, hair like a crow soles of the feet black. A group of men stand over him, swaying, their golden streams mixing in with the mud on his face, tracing swirly lines on his bare skin. He doesn't move. Benny finds the art director at the perimeter of the tip, ripping out fence posts in the dark, 
more fuel for the fire. The power runs out and there are no lights except the flames on the water. The generator's gone by morning. In the dawn light, Nick and Roland kiss like it's the first time. As Benny rolls down the canvas sides of the tent, he finds a perfect love heart, shaped by the soft spray of blood. Nick, the stripper, I'd yes to the eye, I'd yes to the eye. Benny watches the music video downstairs in the ballroom foyer. The film stock is cheap, expired, grainy. The loopy drawing that he had to carry. A psychotic spiral, getting sleepy. The skull head looks like the demon goat Nick kissed. Pulsing zooms and reds and blacks and shadows. It looks different from how he remembers it. It's playing out in reverse sequence. The opening shot from late in the night, the debauchery etched on their faces, shattered in dust and mud. Nick bare-boned, hell-chested. The red and white stripes of the tent jar against Roland's jailbreak shirt. With the pole as support, Nick is free to move. He pushes one ear, then the other, to the camera. It's like he's been shot in reverse too. Strange, jerky motions. The praying mantis dancer swinging around it like the world's not big enough to contain him. The back curtain of the tent rises and those watching follow Nick out into the darkness. A Pied Piper through the landscape where he doesn't walk on water but sets it on fire. It leaves Benny with a desire. To try to find the man's heartbeat, to bring him back from that place. Nick runs by with a pig's head covering his face a mask rubbery with a personality of its own. The camera tracks and weaves so fast the backgrounds really are blurred. The costumes, the decadence, spooling and leaking out. Benny can't really get a fix on much except for the way Nick moves.
The video finishes and it's on a loop and it starts again. A few seconds in and the sound cuts out. Everyone in the foyer groans. It's a new beast without the noise. But it means he can see it now. How they've changed since they got back and now they've left again. Nick wrestles with the goat, he yanks it by the chain, his eyes into the camera are vacant. The absence of them is strong. Benny feels the weight of it. At the ballroom, people stand in the foyer watching their videos. It's like they've come through a war, caught up in some underground struggle. He searches the screen for a glimpse of himself, of Connie. She nudges him and whispers, There we are. A demented zombie nurse. He wants to push Nick out of the way so he can see her. Benny searches the screen again through the chaos. And this time he can catch glimpses of it. The beauty, the heart, pushing back through. Nick twirls in a tipsy ballet like a little girl. As Nick drunkenly falls off a rock, Benny laughs. That was the Nick the Stripper chapter from my novel Almost a Mirror, which was published by Transit Lounge. The book is structured as a mixtape of 80s music, with each chapter revolving around a song. Almost a Mirror is available at all bookstores and as an ebook too. The audiobook is coming soon. Our version of Nick the Stripper was recorded and produced by Richard Andrew at Pharmacy Records, with vocals by Anna Simic, guttural grunts and backing vocals by Henty Griffiths, guitar by Jasper Fenton and drums by Phil Calvert. For the original version, check out the birthday party on Bandcamp. Coming up in the next episode, we meet the women, the Nick fans, the songwriters, the collaborators, and we remember Anita Lane. We look at performance and what makes a musician magnetic on stage and off, and the song, Zoo Music Girl by The Birthday Party. The Almost a Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Krauth, with sound design and mixing by Jed Palmer and Louis Shellier-Gray. Thanks to Jason Walker for tech support too. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. Thanks to the Australian Music Vault at Arts Centre Melbourne and punkjourney.com for helping so much with my research. The theme song is co-produced by Michael Simic and Michael Mooney with vocals by The Trouble, aka Michael Mooney, and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye.